All right. Well, good morning, everyone. I think we are about at time. Yes. Um, let's go ahead and begin with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we are going to be looking today at the first table of the law. We're going to try, it might be a little bit ambitious, but we're going to try to get through it. And we're going to start on page 53 in your small catechism. And um, we're just going to, it's just going to be very basic, straightforward stuff, but we're going to, we're going to go through it and, and uh, reflect along the way, and uh, we're in for a good time. So, what are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are God's law. God's law. His good and loving will for the lives and well-being of all people. Notice what that says, all people, not just Christians. This is, the Ten Commandments are God's ethical will laid out for us uh, in succinct form. And they are meant for all people. And um, we're going to dig into this a little bit. We're going to kind of flesh this out about, about why we know it's for all people. But in any case, um, you know, I, I thought I would just bring up, you know, th- it's one of the, one of the things I, I think is really helpful about Luther is that he just, he lives and breathes everything that he teaches. And I really appreciate how Luther advises us or uh, suggests to us that when we wake up every day, we should begin the day in prayer, uh, say that, recite the Lord's Prayer, recite the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments to give us kind of, to just set our minds right, you know, for how we are to be throughout the day, you know, just something to guide us, right? And then at the end of the day, too, to, again, pray the Lord's Prayer and to, um, to say the, the Ten Commandments again, and to recognize where it is that we have fallen short throughout the day, and then to ask for forgiveness and go to bed at night at once in good cheer, as Luther says, but asking God forgiveness for that time, for those times which we have um, fallen short, which we have transgressed His law. And um, this is just, you know, just when we talk about just daily Christian piety, what shape does that take? How do we do this? What does that look like? I think that's a great way. I think Luther's method is quite good. And it's something I don't always, I mean, truth be told, I don't always live up to this. Uh, I strive for it. But um, I think it's nonetheless an admirable thing to do, to try to do. Just daily, Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, you know, these, these things, this is how we live and breathe. So in any case, uh, that little aside, um, having gotten out of that out of the way, what is God's will for our lives? What is God's will then? So if the Ten Commandments are his, his good and loving will for the lives and well-being, what really does God want? What really is God after when it comes to the Ten Commandments? And the answer is simple. God wants us to trust him above all else, to love him and to love our neighbor. So really, 
what what when you boil it all down, what does God want from us? What is so hard for us human beings to do? It's to love Him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He's only com- He's commanding us to love. That's that is what it is. Love the Lord. Look at what Jesus says here in Matthew 22, underneath question 16. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that's, you see it just from Jesus' own lips. That's the heart of it. Our love for our neighbor flows from, uh, well, really we love because God first loved us. You know, God, of course, you, maybe you could say God gets the first fruits, right? We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we also love our neighbor, right? Um, and in loving our neighbor, we also love God. And, you know, these things are, these things go together. You can't have one without the other. If you truly love God, you will love your neighbor. And if you truly love your neighbor, you will also love God. Uh, these things cannot be separated. Okay. So I should point out that, um, again, what we're, what we're going through is the first table of the law, which, which refer to our relationship with God. You know, how, how, what does that relationship look like as baptized Christians into Christ Jesus? What does this look like? Um, and, and again, th- this is just what you see. Love God, love neighbor. When you boil it all down, that's what it's all about. Okay? Um, let me just get through this next question. We'll stop and, and reflect on this a little bit, see if you guys have any questions. So how did God give his law to us, this ethical instruction? How did God do this? Well, in a couple of different ways. So first, under question 17, God wrote these instructions upon the heart of every human creature. All people have a conscience, an inborn sense of right and wrong. Okay, and... Um, this really, it, it does separate us from the beasts. I mean, we have to just be honest about that. This, you know, our, our inborn sense of right and wrong. Um, you know, since, since God has written his law on every human heart, what we have really is um, natural law accessible to us. You know, these ethical commands not to murder, for example, not to steal, um, not to besmirch somebody's reputation, right? All of these things, in some sense, even to pagans, even fallen human beings, this is written on the hearts of men. And um, our conscience bears witness to this. You know, there's a reason that throughout time and space, not just in America, not just in, you know, Russia, Africa, I mean, across time, throughout time and space, people have, governments have recognized that murder is not good. They have codified this into law. You know, just the, the things which govern our daily life in society, right? And this is accessible to even fallen reason. Fallen reason can approach this and to discuss it and think about it. You know, um, it's important that we recognize that. It's, um, the, I'll just look, look at what St. Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Here, here we see him spell this out explicitly. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Okay, so again, the law, the Ten Commandments, is written on the hearts of men. They may not really be able to flesh it out. They may not be able to articulate it as cleanly as we have it, um, as the Lord gives it in the Ten Commandments. But they nevertheless do. All human beings still have this. Okay, to a great when we we they can see it and, and appreciate it and recognize it to a greater or lesser degree. Okay, and I think Pastor Rodi made a great point. I th- was it last Thursday, Pastor, when you were talking about even sociopaths having. Uh, yes. So even even sociopaths have an inborn sense of right and wrong. They may not have empathy when they when they do something wrong, but even they still have it, right? And so, as Pastor said, you know, the the conscience is very much like an organ. It can be abused, just like your liver if you drink too much, and um, it can degrade. It can, uh, you know, it can really lose its effectiveness. And, you know, conscience is something that we really need to respect. Um, here in, in our day and age, um, religious liberty is, is, is definitely on the decline. And this, the sanctity of the conscience is really being, is, is, is under assault. And people think that, you know, when we, when we say, well, I can't bake the cake because that violates my conscience, people just cynically say, well, that's just a, you know, you, you really don't believe that. You're just a bigot and you're, you know, like people just, it seems by and large people are losing a sense of the sanctity of the conscience and um, that it needs to be appreciated, that it's, it's, it's very important for us human beings to have a conscience, to recognize its value and to nourish it with the word of God, to, to, um, to have it inform our life, our being, our every, everything that we do, right? So in any case, so this is the first way that God gives his law to us. Um, and you'll notice, too, in the Garden of Eden, um, Adam and Eve had a conscience. They knew that eating of the tree, uh, the forbidden, of eating of the forbidden fruit was not what they should do. They knew that they shouldn't do it. They were deceived into doing it, or at least Eve was. And Adam, it seems as though he went against his better judgment. But they had a conscience from the beginning. He formed humanity with a conscience. Okay? Very important for us to recognize that. Okay? So, turning to page 54 then. Second, God wrote the Ten Commandments on stone tablets for the people of Israel. Okay? And um, it's important, too, that we recognize that within the Torah, there are a number of different laws of which the Ten Commandments... Um, are certainly a part, but the Ten Commandments we recognize to be God's moral law. Okay, God's moral law. So what are the, there's, there's, there's other different kinds of law that you find in the Torah. For example, you find um, civil law. So how are certain legal cases to be adjudicated? God spells that out for the theocracy of Israel specifically, right? This is binding for the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. Um, we also see ceremonial or ritual law. So how, how shall the rite of atonement, on the Day of Atonement once a year, how shall that be carried out? How shall the priests be consecrated? You know, these are laws, precepts, or statutes handed down by the Lord specifically for the theocracy of Israel. And those things, the civil law 
and the ceremonial laws have been abrogated uh, with the coming of Christ. Okay, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments, those things endure. And we see all of the Ten Commandments, in fact, except for, with the, with the exception of the Sabbath, I believe, specifically, um, brought up again or explicitly enumerated in the New Testament. And so really, and it makes sense too, because if, if the heart of the law, as, as in terms of his ethical will, in terms of God's ethical will, what does God want us to do? Love God and love neighbor. If that were to be done away with and abrogated, well, we would have nothing but pure anarchy. And God would actually be working against his own work in humanity by giving us a conscience. So um, the moral law is what, in fact, endures into the New Testament. Okay? Very important for us to recognize that, too. Okay, so there's the different kinds of law. It's important too to, that I that I mention that you're not gonna when you when you flip open the Torah, and um, and let's say you go through Leviticus or um, let's say some parts of Exodus, you're not gonna find passages that say okay you are now reading civil law for the people of Israel. It doesn't it doesn't say that, but we can nevertheless recognize what these things are. Okay, and we should also recognize the internal relationship that these things have with one another the intrinsic relationship. So, for example, um, for the priest carrying out the proper consecration of fellow priests or the order of service, right, the way that they um, present sacrifices and conduct the public service, that's all ceremonial law. And rightly following those things is actually loving God, right? It is the way that we love God by doing what he says to do. Right, so you can see the connection there between the ceremonial law and the moral law, right? And so too with the civil law, when certain uh, like sanitation codes are to be upheld for life in um, in and among the people of Israel, adhering to those faithfully um, is love for God and love for neighbor, right? So you can you can see what I'm trying to show you is the the intrinsic relationship between these things and how they work together, right? You can't you can't really separate them. Um, in any in any event, um, yeah. So I'm back on page fifty-four. So third, all the way, about um, what is that? Two thirds of the way down the page, God also gave these instructions. That is the the Ten Commandments, the law, uh, in various ways throughout the Bible, and you get a, a, a slew of scripture references there. Okay, so um, these these commandments uh, reappear in the Bible in manifold different ways. Okay, and fundamentally, we have them distilled down in the Ten Commandments. And for what it's worth, I actually like the, the way that the Jews number the Ten Commandments. They start with God's uh, saying or his, his exclamation that he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right, so he starts with that. And then everything that follows, the rest of the commandments, you shall have no other gods, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, and on down the list, those are to be kept because of who God is and what he has done, right? And so here you, you can really see that biblically in the context of Exodus in which the Ten Commandments are given, you, you, you really do get a sense for what we call the third use of the law. You can see that. We're going to get into that, but um, in any case, I do like that numbering where the first, in, in, in the first commandment, as it were, the first word of God is, I am the Lord your God, and because of that you shall have no other gods, right? So that's the rationale for all the rest of the commandments, how the people of God are to behave. Okay, any thoughts, any, any reflections, any, any, um, any considerations on all this? Yes? 
Um, I saw or I heard on television this last week that conscience was the one thing that might abrogate evolution and that they can't deal with it. And so that will ultimately put a question because there's just no way to deal with conscience. Right. And yet it is written on all of our hearts. Right. And that was not from a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I just thought it was interesting from what you said. Very much so. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I was listening to a, a lecture by Dr. John Kleinig. And he does kind of an interesting, the way that he explains conscience is quite interesting. He does it with sort of an etymological argument, saying that um, conscience in the Greek, uh, in the Greek it's sune deseos, and really it's our ability to see, or our, our capacity to see with, right? And conscience, or conscientia in Latin, is to know with. Right? And so what does that mean? Well, our conscience is our ability to kind of see ethical, moral behavior according to how God sees it. Right? We're seeing things the way that God sees it. It's our ability to do that. Our ability to know certain actions, certain things, certain behaviors according to the way God knows it. Okay, so, uh, conscientia, knowing with. Right, and this um, this can be, as Pastor Rody mentioned in uh, class on Thursday, this can be uh, nourished in a healthy direction. It can, or it can also de- degrade. Right, if you sin against conscience. And I've heard of um, certain occult rituals called uh, like the cremation of care, I believe, where basically what people do. Um, and if anybody knows better, please correct me. But uh, it seems as though it's a, an occult ritual by which they try and suppress the conscience. It's them basically forsaking the conscience and um, this ritual way of suppressing it in order that they might flourish in some particular way. So they, they need to, so basically it's, it's them suppressing the conscience so that they can do, they can conduct shady business deals or um, take advantage of certain people without really giving it a thought. Uh, some th- th- things like that, yes. But you're right, Alice. It is very interesting this idea. That if we are just evolved out of um, soup, why is it that we have this conscience? It really gets in the way of things, doesn't it? Um, so that's a powerful argument against evolution, I would say. But uh, yes, thank you for that, Gina. Okay, I'll go, I'll go fast, Gina. Mm. Listening to a Christian radio program, so this isn't original with me. Um, the guy made the point that sociopaths and, and the such, that apparently people say they don't have conscience uh, that, that affects their actions. They do, he, his point was they do in the sense that if you try to steal from them, they'll stop you. If you try to murder them, they'll stop you. Or anything... The other commandments, uh, they'll stop you. They know it's wrong. Right. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. So even even as you know, as degraded and tarnished as their conscience is, there's still a sort of like self-interested uh, way that they uphold their conscience. Like they can't like they can't go against themselves like that. They can't just let themselves be killed. Right. They they know that this is a threat to them, and they know that it's what you're trying to do would be wrong. And so yeah, that's that's a great point. It's a great point. Okay, so with Alice's comment about evolution 
And with your comment previously about um, the Latin and the Greek of knowing and seeing like God, does it make my mind goes to think of how we're made in the image of God? Mm-hmm. Does that tie in together, or is that off base? Yes, very much so. Yes, yes. Um, we as human beings are, of course, made in the image of God. And part of that, or at least one aspect of being made in the image of God, is that we are, in fact, moral creatures. We are not brute beasts. We are not just apes. We, I mean, this, this quality of, of being moral, of, of doing things in an, uh, um, this inborn sense of morality is a gift from God. It is, um, a, you know, even in, a, even in our fallen nature, you know, it is a remnant. Um, we, we still have that. It's not, it's not completely done away with. Um, so, yes, it is very much tied with the image of God. Now, the image of God, of course, is a, you know, I, I won't spend too much time here. Lots of ink has been spilled on that. But, um, you know, there is an inherent dignity in being a human being, contrary to popular what popular culture will say, that we human beings are essentially a cancer on the earth and that it would be best for us to essentially be eradicated or for our population to be, you know, somewhere below 500 million people or something. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's all wrong. It's all wrong. There is inherent dignity because we reflect God in our human nature. You know, the church fathers used to say uh, that human beings are kind of a mixture between things heavenly, things divine, and things earthly. Right, so we're a blend, we're a composite creature, right? By virtue of our soul and our conscience and our, you know, ability to be moral, right? This capacity that we have, we reflect the deity, we reflect the angelic creatures, we reflect the things above. And also by virtue of our, our, our flesh, you know, that the fact that we hunger, the fact that we're made out of atoms, things tangible, right? We're, we're a part of this fleshly created order down below. And really, human beings are a mixture of these things, right? A blend of things heavenly and things earthly. And so, in that sense, we, we really, it, you know, I think the, the fathers would also say that we are the envy of the angels because um, it wasn't in angels that God set his, his, his image. He didn't create them uh, as he created us. You know, and the fact that we human beings would become, like, in our earthly flesh would become like God, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a profound thing. Even in the weakness of human flesh, God set us on a trajectory. Ultimately, what he wants for the human creature is to be like himself, as weak and as frail as we are. Um, but in any case, yes, to go back to your point, yes, um, being in the image of God, even in our mortal flesh, uh, it, it is very much tied to this moral behavior, the way that we reflect. It's one way that we reflect who God is. Okay, so now um, can I ask about uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Mm. Because I think, it's a, I think it may be a misconception, but a lot of people think, well, before we sinned, we actually didn't know good from evil. The very things you're saying are, the image of God and and so on are actually the product of our sin, right? That we we ate the fruit and therefore we our eyes were open and we knew good from evil. Mm. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? How, how do we reconcile these two two ideas? Yeah. Well, 
I mean, what God says is, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? And so, right then, surely Adam and Eve must have known that that eating of that fruit would be an existential threat to them. It would pose that to them, right? Um, and I think that it's, I think really it's a misconception to think that by virtue of our fall, we actually gained something in a positive way. Really, I think like the biblical way of looking at this is that it's only downward. I don't actually, I, I'm not, Pastor, maybe you can help me out with, with, you, you know, what exactly God meant by the knowledge of good and evil. It's kind of an enigma to me. But I think that biblically, really nothing wa- nothing positive, nothing truly good was gained by our fall, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, there are a few different takes on it, obviously, in the 2,000 years of explicitly Christian interpretation. Um, generally speaking, it's been taken not to be a, an amount of knowledge, strictly speaking, but that that verb to know, to experience. And so the our, so the saying goes that they already were experiencing goodness, and the devil effectively tripped tricked them into knowing uh, evil, experiencing evil. And then is there a, is there kind of a a sense in which by experiencing the evil, you come to know more intimately what was good and long for it and know why it was good. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Uh, but that, that seems to be, by and large, the take. If that helps. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Pastor. Um, all right, why don't we flip back to our catechism and um, let's jump back to page 54. Okay, uh, question 18. How does God use the Ten Commandments in our lives and the lives of others in this world? God uses his commandments, the law, in three ways. We call these the three uses of the law. First, for the good of his creation, God uses the law to limit or prevent coarse outbursts of sin, thereby helping to keep order in the world. And we recognize this use uh, to be like a curb. It curbs coarse outbursts, as you see. And this is the way that God uses it, so that there's some semblance of order and peace among human beings. It's not just utter anarchy and chaos, formlessness and void. That's not... Um, how God wants his creation to be. God is a God of order and a God of peace. And so this is how he, one of the ways that he uses the law as a, as a curb. And this really is the basis for our civil laws in society, you know, to curb wickedness and evil. And that's what the laws are there to do, to preserve the order and safety of human beings, right? Um, the second use of the law Second, he uses the law to reveal and condemn our sin. Okay, and this is, this we recognize to be like a mirror. This is the second use of the law. So I think that I can draw a pretty darn good straight line on a piece of paper until I hold my ruler up to it. Then I see that I can't draw. My wife would say it's because I'm left-handed. But, uh, it's really just because I can't draw. And the ruler shows that. The ruler shows that very, uh, very well. You know, it's just like you try and um, hang a shelf on your wall. You think it's straight. You're kind of looking at it. You get into, you get a second opinion, and it looks fine until you bring the level up there, and you can see that little bubble 
and um, you see, you know, how it's not and what direction it needs to go in. But it's the use, this, this is the primary, the chief and theological use of the law. The Ten Commandments is to reveal and condemn our sin. Okay? It is an active thing for the law to do this. It is an active thing for the law to convict us, to condemn our sin, the things that we do, um, opposed to the law of God and, and His precepts. And you can see really why we, why we recognize this to be the chief use of the law in, um, St. Paul's letter to the Romans here, just under, uh, uh, where it says second, he uses the law. So Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, that is, through in, in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, so St. Paul is not just, it's not saying that the only function of the law is to reveal our sin, but it's the chief use of the law. It, that's chiefly what the law does, is it brings us knowledge of our sin, ways that we have fallen short from what God has commanded. Okay, the law is not sin, right? But if it had not been for the law, as as St. Paul says in Romans 7, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay, um, and let me just touch on the third use, and then we'll, we'll I'll kind of talk about, and I'll use an illustration to kind of help you help, help you see these things. So the third use of the law, he uses the law to guide and direct our thoughts, words, and deeds as Christians in God-pleasing ways. Okay, so notice who, notice who this particular use is for. It's only for Christians. Only Christians have are able to make use of the law or see the law in this particular way as a guide. Okay, um, so I think about it like this. Um, if you if you all remember the the, the, ch- the children's tale of the th- the three little pigs, um, I will make salutary use of that tale. Um, <laughs> so I, th- it's it when the pigs are before the pigs are in the brick house, the pigs recognize the wolf to be an existential threat to them. Right? They can only cower in fear and run and be opposed mortally so to the wolf. Right? He is their their enemy. And they must flee and rage against him. And um, that's, that's really the extent of their relationship. That's the nature of their relationship. But notice what happens when they actually are, are in the safety of the brick house. The threat of the wolf is removed. Okay? The, the, they no longer just see the wolf or they, you know, they, they, they have this opened up to them. They can actually look at the wolf and admire the wolf. Not that they do this per se in the in the fairy tale, but you know they they can look and, and and appreciate how nimble, how agile the wolf is. They can see certain qualities that they would like to take on for themselves. You know, they can appreciate the fact that the wolf is capable of great things of which they're not capable. You know, they want they might want to be like the wolf and how majestic, how athletic, how muscular the wolf might be, right? And so, in the same way. When we Christians, um, through the mercy and goodness of Christ, when he removes the threat and curse and condemnation of the law from us by his atoning sacrifice in our stead and by his shed blood cleanses us from all our sins, right? The threat of the law is removed, okay? We no longer have to look at the law as our mortal enemy, 
right? It's exactly how the psalmist, especially in Psalm 1 and Psalm 119, can say, I meditate on your law day and night. In my inward being, I delight in your law. You can look at the law, the Ten Commandments, and see, my goodness, how, how wonderful a way this is to be, to love God purely, to not misuse his name, and to honor my father and mother, to not kill people, even in my thoughts, even in my the deepest recesses of my beings, to be opposed to people like this. You know, It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful way for us to live. Right? And so this is the third use of the law, the way that the law guides us as Christians, fully assured of the grace that we have in Christ. Nevertheless, this is how we want to live. And we do, by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit kindles new affections in our heart for God and neighbor in this life. And really, we become more in this life what we will be in the next life. Right? If you want to know what, out, what we will be like, how we will behave in the resurrection, take a look at the Ten Commandments. That is how we will be, right? perfectly, uh, without, without deviation, without error. Right? So um, in any case, these are the three uses of the law. And it's important that we um, see that the second use of the law is really the most important. Okay? Because functionally, if the first use of the law was the chief use, well, functionally, it would be the equivalent as civil law, right? Um, there really wouldn't be much to distinguish it in, um, from, you know, our, our, you know, our United States code that says, you know, murder is wrong uh, or theft is not to be, uh, you know, theft is not tolerated, it, you know, it's condemned by this particular statute, right? So we, that, we, we recognize that that's not right. And if the third use of the law ends up being the chief use of the law. Well, really what that does is it diminishes the gospel because all our focus is is on how we are to better our lives and that's really the emphasis of Christianity if the third use of the law is the chief use. And it's what happens in American evangelicalism by and large is the gospel is really only for um, that initial conversion that you make. You can't, you're brought into the Christian faith, you hear the gospel, you rejoice in the forgiveness of your sins, and then we kind of jettison that and we focus only on how you can improve your life by use of the law, right? And the gospel kind of fades into the background, and it's not, we don't see it as an ever-present reality for us. Okay, so the chief use of the law must be the second use, right? We must recognize that. Um, that it condemns our sin and it drives us to Christ. And only because of that can we live a new life. Okay, and you know, I would point out too, and on, on page 55, this, this statement down here, the law always accuses. You see that? The law always accuses. Well, the, the immediate question is, well, who does it accuse? Does it accuse the saints in heaven? No. No, it doesn't. Does it, did it accuse Adam and Eve before they had fallen into sin? No. No, it doesn't. It does not always accuse. It always accuses sinners, right? And uh, in, in so far as uh, Romans 10 is concerned, Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ does not abrogate or get rid of, he does not destroy the moral law. He does not want, the Lord does not want uh, anarchy to reign supreme, no. Christ is the, the telos of the law, the perfection of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if you would have perfection, 
um, faith in Christ is necessary. He is our righteousness. Okay. Um, that's probably all I want to say on that. Do we have any quick thoughts, any questions, any comments on this before we move forward? Yes. Maybe this is just mirroring what you just said, but it, it does seem that only the third use of the law will survive this world, mm. right? So it's, in some sense, you're right, the second worst use of the law for us right. is the most important. But actually, right. in the end, the one that God intends for us right. and the one that we will continue to use in right the, the new mm. heavens and the new earth is the third use of the law. And the others... We won't be thinking about harming our neighbor. Oh. You know, we don't won't need mm-hmm. to have control of our civil government, and we won't need to be shown our sin anymore. It's true. So it's only the third use. So maybe you can almost think of them as an order of increasing eternity, mm. right? The first use of the law has nothing to do with the eternal life. The second use, that right, it's necessary for us to to have it in order for us to repent mm-hmm. and right have eternal life. And the third one is the use we'll actually have in heaven, we'll still use. Right, yeah. I, I think maybe we would say that um, in heaven, we will actually need no, you know, we won't even really need to, to, to reference it. We will all do it by nature. And so we will not need any threats, any exhortation, any, any of that in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the resurrection, when we're purified from all sin. But your point is well taken. And that is that love will endure. You know, faith, hope, and love, these, uh, well, faith and hope will pass away. That's, uh, relegated to this old order of things that will, that will be put away. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we will love instinctively by nature and we will need no exhortation to do so. So you're right. In that sense, it is the, the enduring one, really. Was there another one? Yes, Paula. Uh, Jim, uh, I have two comments. One refers to your earlier uh, discussion of the relationship between ceremonial and civil mm. law and so forth. And we have a phrase in our culture today that politics or laws are downstream from mm. culture. Mm-hmm. So that you see the interaction between that. Mm-hmm. We once had a pastor who, and this was several years ago, would say when the society goes awry, basically comes from the church being weak. Mm. And then uh, I wanted to say, too, uh, how important this is that we're doing this. It's a great review. And I wanted to give three instances where this became very clear. Um, one time we were listening to a lecture from Dr. Laura Schlesinger, and she would ask, it was a huge crowd at the book fair in L.A., and she would ask people, do you know what the fourth commandment is or the fifth or the sixth? And there was silence. And mm. she was decrying to the group what has happened to our culture, mm. that we don't even know the Ten Commandments. Yeah. We had friends who left Lutheranism and went to another denomination. And they were astounded at the ignorance mm. in that denomination mm. where we have the rich heritage from catechetical sud- studies yeah. and that kind of thing. Oh, and then there's a story from Craig Parton, 
who years ago was in another denomination, and he realized things were not good. But he got a hold of the Lutheran Catechism. He was listening to the White Horse Inn. And when he went back to his congregation, he said they thought I was a theological giant just because I knew the Catechism. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, for people who don't know the Catechism, yeah, I mean, surely, yeah, you'd be a giant. Um, I, I appreciate what you said, too, about um, the relationship between uh, politics and culture. And um, I think, I don't, I, just this is the way that I've been thinking about this lately. And that is that um, I'm, not entirely con- I'm not entirely convicted that um, politics is strictly downstream from culture. I think that politics and culture, uh, they do have a relationship that they, in such, that, such a way that they can um, influence one another. Um, it's just like, you know, with the law, there's, with the third use of the law, there's a teaching function to the law. And so it teaches you what is good and right. And so the same thing is true in civil law. If in civil law, abortion is permitted and it's held up as a sacred right, um, a sacred thing for you to do, well, that teaches you something, does it not? It teaches you something about human nature, about um, what you're free to do, what you should be free to do, and um, rights that you should be able to exercise at your at your leisure. Um, maybe all this isn't coming out quite clear, but um, I do think that, of course, with the law, there is a teaching function to it. Um, and I, I think that politics and culture can can influence one another, and they do so um, probably more than than we than we think. Um, in any case, I, I appreciate your comment. Yeah, okay. Yes, it is circular. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get across. Thank you. Thank you. All right, why don't we move on a little bit. Um, Let's see. Let's see. So on page 56, this is important too. I definitely want to hit this. What is sin? What is sin? Sin is humanity's fallen condition. We are turned away from God and are unable to look to him for security, meaning, and righteousness. This inner sinful condition results in actual sins of thought, desire, word, or deed that are contrary to God's will, as summarized in the Ten Commandments. Okay, so there you go. In 1 John 3, 4, we see outright the, uh, the evangelist, the apostle. He says, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Anomia. Um, acting as though there was no law, transgressing the commandment of God. God says, do this, and we deviate from that. We don't do it. Um, it's, yeah, it's the transgression of the commandments of God. Okay, and sin is not just some sort of like, you know, it, you almost get the sense that sin is like this airy intellectual thing, you know, out there in the ether somewhere. Sin is also a destructive power at work within all of us. We have a fallen nature. Sin is tearing us apart from the inside. Okay, and that's ultimately why we die. The power of sin is at work within us, and it leads us away from the things of God. Um, This is called concupiscence, when we're bent away in our desires from the things of God. We desire to do the things contrary to what God wants us to do. Okay. Um, it's important for us to recognize that, that sin, uh, you, you, you hear kind of, you see St. Paul talk about the law of sin and death. That's kind of, it's, it's kind of gets around to this idea, this principle of sin is at, very much at work within us by virtue of inherited sin. 
Okay, so when we talk about, there's, we make a distinction between original sin and actual sin. So original sin is this inborn corruption that we all receive by virtue of our lineage, um, by, by virtue of our being born from Adam, right? From Adam. So again, where the head goes, the body follows. And so with Adam, the head of all humanity, um, and creation for that matter, at least earthly creation, um, he was uh, turned away from God. He was corrupted. His entire nature, his entire being was corrupted, bent away from God, and so too all of his progeny. Everyone who is descended from Adam is likewise, uh, has inherited what that which was Adam's, which is this corruption, this decay of our nature. We have fallen from what we originally were, and this is passed on um, through our sinful flesh. Okay? And um, so actual sin is, um, and by the way, I should point out too that original sin is damnable. This is not something that God just winks his eye at. No, original, this corruption of our nature is worthy of damnation. It is something deserving of punishment in itself. Right? So even, I think Luther says this too, even if we had never committed any actual sin, even if we had never gone out and robbed the bank, even if we had never taken something that's not ours or uh, thought anything wrong or anything like that, by virtue of our corrupted nature, we still deserve eternal punishment. That's not to say that, I mean, look, where, where you have original sin, there will also be actual sins of necessity. But in any case, the fallen condition, this corrupted nature, which we all have and we've all received, it is damnable. Okay, so actual sin is where we, of our own will, go out and do, and we transgress the commandments of God. We go against what he says by, as a voluntary act, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, I don't like to think about it too much, but, uh, you know, that's, you have to, it's, it's necessary. I mean, like, I think in Rome as well, pastor, correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, they look at, um, original sin, um, insofar as it goes as just basically like the tinder, as the tinder of sin. And it, so you can, you can maybe think, uh, lustful, impure thoughts, but as long as you don't act on those things, then no sin has really been committed, right? But that's not what the scriptures teach. It is just, it, it's just not, right? Um, original sin in and of itself, as I said, is, um, damnable in God's sight. And it, it is worthy of condemnation. Is that, Pastor, is that accurate? Is that how Rome views that? For the most part, I think so. For the most part, okay. <laughs> Good enough, I suppose. Okay. Um, in any case. Yes, Estella. Um, I think we are not as aware of our corrupt, uh, sinful mm-hmm. nature mm-hmm. that we th- we feel like, you know, being a good father, be- being a good neighbor, being, you know, go to church every day, uh, every every Sunday, and take our life, you know, easy, uh, that's going to be enough. Mm. But we forgot about the temptation mm. that the devil presents us daily mm-hmm. on TV, on the podcast, whatever we can see or hear or eat or, or take is tempting us 
every second mm -hmm. of our lives mm -hmm. that if we don't take seriously and meditate on the Word of God and take the Eucharist mm -hmm. and if we don't walk daily on mm -hmm. the path of God we're gonna fall absolutely because of our sinful nature absolutely and the temptation is there mm -hmm. yeah well said well said yeah Dr. Luther says that uh, I believe this is in the small called articles that our corrupted nature is so far gone. I mean, original sin is so awful and terrible. It is, um, you, it, it is beyond our reason to fully understand our, the corruption of our nature. That is a deep and inscrutable wickedness and darkness that has descended upon us. And, um, you know, our old Adam is very crafty too. He likes to make us think uh, that that we are being, um, you know, real. Really, we're doing. We're on the on the straight and narrow. You know, we we pay our taxes. We go the speed limit sometimes. Uh, you know, we really. It's like, well, I'm a better person than Joseph Stalin. I, you know, I. It's like, wow, you set the bar real high there. You know, um, but uh, no, you're absolutely right. Yes, this our. Our fallen nature is always at war within us, and the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, are set against the the, the, the lusts or the desires of the spirit. And um, in this life, we struggle against our sinful flesh until we die, until God, in His mercy, actually removes it from us through death. In this way, death is seen as mercy, that um, we we actually die. You know, cancer is kind of like uh, you, you could boil it down, I suppose. To I've heard a theologian do this, but. Uh, cells that will that refuse to die and so if we refuse to die um, you know we in, in our in our sin we are basically cancerous human beings our sin is cancerous it metastasizes it grows and um, you know we, we are very much set in mortal conflict mortal combat with our old Adam you know the new man is set against the old man so you know it, as soon as we give up that fight um, you know it's very much like like swimming upstream as soon as we, we let go for a minute, we, as soon as we relax and think that we've got it all under control, well, uh, you know, take heed. So thank you for your reflection. You have something, Diane? Okay. I'm not sure if this is the time to talk about it, but how do Lutherans rightly think about, we talked about this, I think, a couple weeks ago, my mind was going there with regard to the incarnation of Christ. Mm -hmm. So if Mary was not without sin right. and the Holy Spirit interacted with her biological being, mm -hmm. are we to think that the deity of Christ is what wiped away the original sin that would have been there from her? Mm -hmm. Yes, I believe, um, you know, really what the scriptures say is that the Holy Spirit... Uh, came upon her, the power of the Most High overshadowed her, and um, it was by the operation of the Spirit that she conceived. And so um, we are led to believe, uh, the Scriptures do not outright say this, but that when Christ was conceived in the womb, the Spirit purged the egg of Mary from all sin and corruption and completely renewed the human nature. Um, and it's important that we, that we confess that Jesus did actually receive his humanity from Mary. He did not descend from heaven with some sort of celestial flesh. 
It is our human nature that, that Christ took on, but he freed it, he purged it from all sin uh, in the Spirit. Does that help? Yes, and I think maybe when we talked about it, it was in relation to the sermon that Pastor had given about Adam and Eve having been created in the image of God, and so they shone mm-hmm. with the borrowed light. Right. So now it has to do with now... Christ is the new Adam, yeah. so again, he's, but he's shining with God's light because right. he is God and man. Right. So it, that's really kind of how we got into that conversation was thinking about right. all that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Mm-hmm. Dale, what you got? <laughs> uh, one of the most persistent objections you get to Christianity is about the subject of original sin. Um, and people will say, well, right, you say you're born as a baby with this original sin that is damnable. What on earth did I ever do to be born, right, with a, right with this? You know, how is God good if this, this, you know, if he created me with this original sin in the first place? Yeah. And I, I know that there's an answer to this having to do with Adam being our, our perfect representative. Can you talk about that a little bit? having to do with Adam as our perfect representative. I, 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 I think I remember something about hmm. I, I think I remember, I, I've asked this question before, and of course I forget the answers hmm. all the time. So, um, but I, I think I remember, maybe it was with Rod Rosenblatt, but I don't know which pastor it was that told me that it had to do with Adam's being our perfect representative, that this is the reason that, that we are also culpable, right? In Adam, we all fell. Yes, I see. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. So by virtue of our descending from Adam, um, we are being from Adam, being out of Adam. We all participate in the sin, that sin which he uh, fell into, right? That corruption which he fell into. Yeah, you know, and I think it's important for us, too, to say, well, you know, we know that babies are sinful, even if they haven't committed some gross act of you know, armed robbery or something like that. Well, you know, infants die. Infants die. And that's, that's the plainest, most obvious indication of a fallen and corrupt nature is the death of an infant who before our eyes seems perfectly innocent and, uh, you, you know, not culpable of anything. And yet even they, they die. Um, you know, it's, it's indicative of a fallen and corrupt nature. And so, um, yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I'm, I'm not probably as skilled as, uh, <laughs> as as Rod Rosenblatt in answering some of these questions, but uh, you know, it is what it is, I suppose. All right, Let, maybe another thought, maybe another question. Let's uh, move on just a, a little bit here. I would refer everyone. About four four years ago, on Christmas morning, excuse me, on Christmas morning, about the battle between God and with the angels against the devil who had corrupted 
uh, with the devil who had corrupted his creation. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the things he said, the reason the angels sang at Christmas was that a savior was coming to redeem what the devil had destroyed. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could have been there to, to, to see and to hear the angels rejoicing at the... Uh, at the restoration of mankind, you know, because think about how the angels would look at this, at the fall of humanity, this marvelous, I mean, human, human beings are marvelous creatures, you know, they reflect who God is, and for one of the angels' own, you know, among their own ranks to take it upon themselves to abdicate their position, their role as ministers of mankind, people who, sh you know, beings that should help us, and in fact, use what God has given them to turn us away from God to lead us down the path of damnation and separation from God. I mean, the angels must must have just been just distraught at this, that one of their own would do this, take it upon themselves to do such a horrible, evil thing, right? And so it would not surprise me at all if that's exactly why the angels were singing and rejoicing, you know, and why the angels rejoice at one sinner who repents, you know. Just even there, you can see the restoration of mankind in real time, right before their eyes. And what a, what, a, what a wonderful thing it is. They can see that, and would that we had eyes to see it too. But thank you. Thank you for your reflection. Yes. Yes, we are out of time. Um, unfortunately, I was not able to get very far. But um, I, I hope that this, that this was at least somewhat helpful, a, a nice, uh, just going through the, 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 the commandments in general, and looking at the uses of the law, which is the chief use of the law, what is sin, and how are we affected by it. And thereby we see the, the, the great glory and wonder of Christ crucified for all our sins. Uh, the Lord be with you.